Joining me today is a man who took the world of rugby by storm in the mid-2000s. Born in the Transvaal in 1983, he seamlessly worked his way up through the South African rugby system before bursting onto the international scene as a springbok in 2004. A debut try at Twickenham sort of lit the touch paper for what was to become a quite sensational career for this flying winger. During that prolific career, he won a World Cup, a Lions series, countless club titles, and a number of individual accolades, including World Rugby Player of the Year in 2007. He remains the joint record holder of the most career Rugby World Cup tries and the most tries scored in a single World Cup tournament, both of which he shares with the late, great Jonah Lomu. Off the pitch, he became somewhat of a poster boy for the sport. Who can forget the times he raced against a cheetah or the Boeing A380? Now in his role as ambassador for HSBC and Land Rover, he devotes himself to helping take the sport he loves to new communities, while the foundation he established in 2015 continues to support the next generation in South Africa. Welcome to the pod, Brian Habana. Brian, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Mr. absolute pleasure to be engaging with you again. Uh, I think it's been a while since we've actually uh, come across, I think it was Hong Kong or a couple of Loris events. Uh, I hope that you're doing well and keeping safe in amongst these very strange times where we're all going through. I am keeping safe and thank you, Brian. And, and I think we can dispense with it, Mr. Coe. It makes me sound quite old, actually. So why don't we, why don't we settle for Seb? Yeah, I tell everyone, and I get that quite a lot, um, it has nothing to do with your age. It's more got to do with the level of respect that I have for you. Um, and obviously, again, uh, a massive icon for when I was a little you know, athlete and my dad told me about you know, this famous Seth Co that wanted to die in his uh, running you know, running shoes um, to break records and, and do some spectacular things. So more out of respect than anything else. Well, that, that's very kind of you. I thought you were about to say you're, parents kept, allowed you to stay up late to watch my races that would have probably <laughs> sort of put me into that era brian let me put a, ru uh, a rumor to bed or or you may want to stand it up i'm a lifelong chelsea fan and you won't be surprised that my attention was piqued at the rumor that you were named after two manchester united players so out of respect, I wore something Chelsea-ish um, for the podcast, and I know the viewers can't see what I'm wearing, but they, hopefully the blue um, subdues the, <laughs> the Manchester United affiliation. But yeah, I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm my Brian, I was delighted. I was delighted not to see too much red around the place. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're still moving at the moment, so I'll put up all my Manchester United paraphernalia at, at another at another stage. But yeah, my, I'm not quite sure what my parents were thinking, um, naming me after the late great. Brian Robson and Gary Bailey, two Manchester United legends. Um, but yeah, I think they thought it would be pretty apt, uh, hoping that I could potentially, you know, grow up wanting to become the next South African export into the English Premiership. And for, yeah, for the first 12 to 13 years of my life, that was probably what I wanted to do. And um, there was a significant moment that changed my life forever. Um, and one we'll probably get into later in this podcast, but Yep, I want to, don't want to say for my sins, but Brian with a Y, um, Gary Habana. Um, yeah, and hopefully there's been you know, a few other youngsters named now after me. Congratulations to your parents, because actually they've chosen, chosen two pretty tasty players. I can remember Brian Robson and certainly Gary Bailey, and they, they don't, in those positions, they certainly didn't get much better than those. So, okay, that's true. And who the hell came up with the idea of the cheetah? We'll get we'll get the we'll get the small talk out of the way in the first place. Yeah. Did it not occur to them? That, did it not occur to them that cheetahs run at seventy miles an hour, even at your even at your elevated twenty two miles an hour, Brian? That was yeah. that was probably a bridge too far. <laughs> it wasn't even the the seventy miles an hour. It was getting to seventy miles an hour in under three seconds that um, you know, scared <laughs> the living daylights out of me. Um, but it literally it. it got blown totally out of proportion. We got a nature conservation uh, NGO uh, that sort of wanted to highlight the plight of the cheetah becoming an extinct animal. And yeah. they sort of came up with this idea. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. You know, no one's ever raced against a cheetah before. Uh, but not knowing, it was literally in the middle of rugby season. My super rugby coach was furious with me. It was like two days before, like one of our biggest games against the Crusaders or something. Um, in South Africa and we got to this nature reserve or game farm and there was like this patchy piece of grass 
that had apparently just been laid two weeks prior. And I was like, oh my word, I can see a hammy being pulled or ankle being twisted. And, and then I like sort of looked and I'm like, okay, well, if I'm running here, where's the cheetah running? And they're like, oh no, you see this little piece of rope running down this very dodgy spot, spot, patchy, spotty piece of grass. I'm like, yeah, now you're going to be on the one side and the cheetah is going to be on the other side of the string. I'm like, no, 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 I didn't sign up for this. I'm like, okay, well, so the risk is for me, if this cheetah like gets to the 70 miles an hour um, in under three seconds and looks up and off the lure and sees my rump as a much more attractive piece of meat, you know, what is the protocol? They go, oh, no, it's fine. No, we got we got one tracker on this 100-meter track that, um, you know, has got a dart gun. Like, my God, how good is this guy's shot? I haven't signed up for this. Um, and then it literally was, you know, just creating a little bit of media attention. I mean, we didn't have the likes of a Twitter. But presumably, presumably the dart gun was to sedate you when the cheetah got you. <laughs> I mean, I was like, well, how good is this guy's shot, first of all? Um, and on which side of this little piece of string is he going to be standing? Because if he misses the cheetah and, like, sort of, like shits me in the cob. Uh, so it did get quite a few views on YouTube and I think that they're still getting quite a few. Um, but it was literally to just, just try to raise the, the plight of the cheetah and again, got blown a little bit out of proportion. And yeah, like I said, it was something that I didn't envision. Um, Brian, actually in my researches, we've just talked about YouTube, but actually in my researches, um, I did look at you running against the cheetah, but you might actually historically Put, to put this in a historical perspective, you may not be aware that Jesse Owens, back in the late 30s, who Jesse Owens, who famously broke four or five world records in less than an hour at Ann Arbor uh, in, in 1935, 36, of course, he went on to famously win his Olympic titles uh, in Berlin. Uh, but he, towards the end of his career, actually ran against a horse. Uh, I think it might have oh, wow. actually been in Vegas, yeah. So I, I'm not yeah. sure that that's probably on YouTube, but uh, it's uh, it's been done before, Brian. But I think probably the chances of uh, of Jesse <laughs> being munched by a horse were probably a lot less than the risks yeah. you, no, you took on no, with the cheetah. Yeah, I uh, got quite a scolding all, all around, but um, hopefully we we raised a bit it, of money and uh, awareness around what the true value and the plight of the cheetah was all about. No, well, that, that's a good thing to be doing, but it is it's. It's um, surprising it's how, you can't how, think that um, no, happened now in yeah, the it's, modern it's, professional it's, era. It's not surprising. Nurse, coaches get a little bit uh, nervous <laughs> on those occasions. But so, actually, let me go back to one point you made. So, was was football yours really your first sport? Yeah, well, so that was sort of very close with WWE or WWF back yep. in the days. Like, I, I wanted to be the next. Um, heartbreak kid or undertaker or whatever. Uh, but football was, was something I absolutely loved. Yeah. I, you know, we grew up in a Manchester United loving family. So, you know, we, we had all the supporters again, whatever. And yeah, I just loved playing football. And it was a pretty significant moment back in 95 that just changed that hope and dream of one day becoming the next export into the English Premiership, uh, which was extremely significant. And looking back now, I'm really grateful that it did happen. Look, I, I'm, I'm guessing I know what that great moment in 1995 was. And that we all have great emotional moments in our lives. Some of them are profoundly personal, the arrival of children and, and, and all those sorts of things. Uh, and others are, are really big global moments. And for anybody that it trans transcended sport, but for me, one of those, those memories was, of course, Nelson Mandela wearing his number six Springbok shirt and, and and the cap handing the Webb Ellis trophy over to uh, Francois uh, in 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 the stadium. I mean that you know you were what you you can't have been very old at that stage. You were born you were born nineteen eighty three. So twelve years old. Fell yeah. in a it must have fallen in a pretty formative part of your your awareness of of being mm -hmm. a, a young person. Very much formative part of sort of my adolescence. I, you know, started finding out about, you know, South Africa became a republic in 94. We, I'll never forget in 94, we actually had like a, a voting election at our primary school where we weren't voting for, you know, political icons or 
parties, but actually like for some of our sporting heroes and the, the 92 Proteas uh, cricket squad is actually like famous. Uh, you know, I sort of voted for John D. Rhodes who had that famous run out against Pakistan. Um, and then obviously 95 had happened. And you know, for those that don't understand South African's history, you know, the whole apartheid regime and how, you know, 60 odd percent of our population, uh, you know, were oppressed uh, just to a very big extent. You know, I grew up, you know, as a person of color in this fairly white dominated environment in South Africa. Um, even though my parents shielded me from a lot of it, you know, I got to go to some really good schools and get offered a lot that other peoples of color, you know, wouldn't plenty have got offered. And I think that moment in 95, you know, my dad took me out of school for the first time ever to go watch the opening game down in Ellis Park. We you know, took a road trip down from Johannesburg to Cape Town and just seeing this monumental occasion starting to, you know, pick up speed, you know, South Africa winning that first game against the then world champions. And we went on a bit of a roadshow. My dad took us to the quarterfinal with the Chester Williams famously scored four tries against Samoa, got back in a car the following week, drove down to a rain drenched Durban to watch the semi-final where the French still believe they beat the Springboks. And then I was lucky enough to be one of the, you know, one of the 60 odd thousand in Ellis Park that day, um, hearing a very white dominated crowd chanting Nelson Mandela's name, a 12 year old boy having no recollection of apartheid and, you know, but just seeing the power that sport had to change people's minds and outlooks and sat in that stadium, you know, witnessed Joel Stransky kick that famous kick over and witnessed, you know, Nelson Mandela hand Francois Pino of the cup they called Bill. And those famous words of, it wasn't for the 60,000 people in the stadium, it was a 40, you know, for the 48 million South Africans sort of resonated with a 12 year old boy you know, looking up at my dad saying, I want to do what these guys have done. I want to now become a rugby player. And having never played the game, witnessing that, yeah, you couldn't get a, get a bit bigger watershed moment you know, in really fully understanding the power that sport has to impact lives, but also the power that sport has to instill dreams. And yeah, it made me pick up the game of rugby the following year. Um, and 12 years later, you know, I have the opportunity to represent my country in a World Cup and you know, do something incredibly special as well. I'm, I'm smiling for two reasons. Firstly, the emotional warmth with which you talk about that period in your life. And I'll, I'll touch on that again, if I may, uh, in a moment. I'm also smiling at the thought that the French still thought they'd beaten the Springboks that day. <laughs> it's a bit like the Welsh, you know, the, the famous saying in Wales, Wales never never lose, they just don't score enough points. So, <laughs> so <laughs> but the, the, the more serious element of that smile, uh, and I guess the more serious element of this question, uh, as a 12-year-old, of course, you were brought up uh, in an environment, and particularly the years that you were brought up in probably, arguably, the most violent years uh, of apartheid in, in South Africa. So that must have, uh, I mean, I, I recognise 1995 was clearly a seminal moment, and I'm guessing for many people in your country that sort of cemented, sport helped cement that change. But those must have been fairly searing years to have been brought up uh, as a young person in South Africa. Mm. Let's go, you know, to, to look back now, and I think I'm incredibly grateful for the upbringing we had. My dad was yeah. a very successful businessman, and you know, we got shielded from a lot of it. My mom was yeah. a lot darker of complexion. And I mean, yeah. we got told stories about how my older brother, who's five years older than me, you know, would sometimes be looked at uh, and my mom would be thought to be his domestic. And then there was separation or then she potentially couldn't get on the same train as him. Um, so I don't think myself and my younger sister, who's four years younger than me, potentially, you know, had that really complex experience because we also shielded. But then, and we did go to white upper class schools where you sort of see, but why am I one of very few people of color in a country that is, you know, you're in an environment where you're only seeing people of color and then you go to a school and you're like, oh, this is very different to the suburb I'm actually living in. And there was a lot of violence. We were protected from it. You know, we'd heard the stories and I think, you know, through my dad's growth and um, from a business perspective, my mom was in education as well. And as a kid, you don't always see what is happening around you because you don't really see color. You know, I think the you know, color really gets installed in you um, the older you get, you know, the, the, you're almost, you know, color blind when you're growing up as, as, as a young child. And, you know, then 
as soon as the world opens up for you, things start developing a little bit more. So a very turbulent time in South Africa, um, a lot of turmoil, a lot of you know violence, um, a lot of oppression. But again, I think seeing someone like Nelson Mandela, you know, having spent 27 years of his life in prison, take the massive leap of forgiveness, um, you know, use the symbol of the Springbok, which was seen as an oppressionistic symbol by 60 odd percent of our country yeah. yeah, and let him understand the power that could potentially. And yes, everything played out perfectly. Um, you, know, you had Chester Williams who you know, he called me a poster boy. Chester Williams was the poster child of that 95 World Cup. Um, and just how that team brought people together. And you had three quarters of your population who had no idea about rugby, just celebrating the joy that this newly formed democracy now brought and that they were given this ability to unite through sport. And for me, that moment was so monumental. It almost put whatever was happening from a, an oppressionistic perspective because of apartheid so far behind in everyone's mind that we really saw the opportunity that lied in being a united South Africa. I think we're still a long way from that, um, like many places in the world. But I think that moment was just so significantly powerful and not just for South Africa, for you know, people around the world, you know, seeing yeah. the beauty that sport could play. Uh, the, the bridgehead into exactly the point you've just made, that it wasn't, you know, it was profoundly impactful in South Africa, but the ripples spread way, way beyond South Africa. I can remember, you know, on that occasion, you know, the people from not just rugby playing nations, but nations mm. that probably have never even seen the game being so profoundly moved by. Uh, Brian, I've heard you talk very passionately. Well, you've just spoken passionately. I've heard you talk passionately in the past uh, about the, the, the power of sport. And of course, you and I also have something in common because although my years were a few years ago with Laureus, you're very much now uh, uh, the, 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 the new blood uh, at Laureus, which is the, 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 the wonderful foundation created by your fellow countryman, Johan Rupert, and, and of course, Nelson Mandela. Uh, that was was our honorary president. Um, and I know that we all feel that sport has had a profound impact on our lives, but it, but it, it does genuinely feel to me like the Springboks are the living embodiment uh, of that idea. To a big extent, without a doubt, I think, you know, when you have a history like we do, in South Africa around apartheid, around such a big proportion of your country and its people, you know, being oppressed to then have a sport like rugby. And we go back to 95 and we only had Chester Williams was the only player of color in that team, you know, 2007 final it was myself and JP Peterson uh, on the wings as the only players of color. And, you know, I get asked a lot, what, what is the most significant sporting moment for the Springboks? And, 95 for me was incredible. 2007 yeah. as a player was phenomenal, you know, because you, the work, the sacrifice, the dedication that you put in to achieve being on the biggest stage of your sport and doing something significant for your country and then coming back and seeing that impact. But I was fortunate enough to be in Japan in 2019 and witnessing Sia Khaleesi become a year prior, the first player of color to captain the Springboks to then go on and lift a World Cup trophy and see a Springbok side truly reflective of the demographics of our population and not there because of the color of their skins, but there because of their sporting ability. And that then resonating with three quarters of your population, you know, we didn't have hope, you know, we only saw it as a sport that white people played. And getting to be in that stadium in, in 2019 in the Yokohama stadium, witnessing that moment, the significance of it, um, so profound in a different way in comparison to, to 95 and with a true reflection of what the possibilities are. And I tell everyone the story and I, I got quite emotional a number of times around that week, just talking about this team and what they were doing. And I was at a Loris event and telling people that, in 2007, when we were winning the Rugby World Cup, you know, Sia Khaleesi was in a Shabin, which is like a township cabin. Yes. Yeah. Because his yeah. grandmother, who he was living with, you know, his mom died very early. His dad, you know, was not, you know, was not present at all. So he was watching it in a 
tavern in the a Shabin in a tavern in the township because he couldn't afford a TV. And he was wanting to go to school the next day, not for an education, but to get a meal uh, because he wasn't getting it, you know, and to, to try to tell that to people, to try to let them understand or comprehend how vastly different that is from seeing Sia Khaleesi, the captain of the Springboks, lifting the World Cup and the significance of that moment to then understand that, you know, <laughs> such a massive population um, in terms of Cali South Africa now really can hope and dream and envision what the possibilities that sport you know, is able to bring about. It's, it was huge. And I think for me, being able to be a part of that was, was pretty spectacular. Look, I, I think that obviously 1995 for, for most of us that were watching sport and, and believed in the power of sport to, to change lives was, was a huge moment. Hmm. Uh, and yes, okay. As an England fan, 2019, I, I, I saw it in Australia with some, with uh, actually some great friends of mine who are big rugby fans over there. My daughter was competing in a, a triathlon uh, that day and uh, she finished absolutely exhausted. And then we sat down to what we hoped was going to be a, a crowning moment. It, it didn't, but actually... So what you what hoped was, or what you thought was going to be a crowning moment? Well, like many. probably both. <laughs> probably both. But, you know, that's the great thing about sport. It is it is wonderfully disrespectful about reputation. It's not like Hollywood or a novel where you can flick to the final page and, and, and suddenly see the plot unfold. You have, yeah. as you know, you have no idea, frankly, no, where so. it's going. And, and it's, it's, that's the, that's the beauty of sport. And that's why it will always be so unique and so different yeah. from anything else in the entertainment world. We are, we are reality television at its best. There's nothing at to compare best. with it. Okay. That's, that's my rant over <laughs> for the moment. Let me go back to the, to, to the point I wanted to make. Um, yeah, we were disappointed, but I remember sitting with her and, and, and a, a whole heap of Australian friends of mine, and we all instinctively recognised, uh, I'm not sure where the Australians were, they were, I'm not sure whether they were sort of quite so excited at either element of that result. I think they were probably more privately happy that England got stuff, given the, the sort of disposition of most Australians on that matter. But what I guess for me was I just looked at that and so did my daughter and, and our friends, and we just thought this is actually so much more important for South Africa to have won this game. It wasn't the score. And, yeah, the Siokanisi mm. was, you know, that was, again, so totemic of the change that was being being enshrined but I guess you and 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 the rest of the world looked at that and thought actually you can do so much more with that in South Africa than almost any of the other rugby nations winning that trophy would have yeah. done in their own societies. Without a doubt I look at that moment and I think many people thought you know England would win given that incredible result against the All Blacks a week prior but I think witnessing that and against you know if if England had won and hindsight is 2020 vision but if England had won they go back they celebrate you know they take an open top bus uh, you know through through the seats of London and within a day or two it's over and done with you come back to South Africa and you see people of color who previously had no hope people of color who previously didn't think things as monumental as seeing a black Springbok captain lift the World Cup trophy would ever happen now really become a tangible grasping thought that it is possible and have true hope instilled in them in that Sia Khaleesi who grew up not knowing you know where his next meal was coming from Makazoli Mapimpi who had to walk 10 kilometers to school and 10 kilometers back from school five days of the week for five years of his life just to get an education becomes the first Springbok to score a try in a Rugby World Cup final, which doesn't say much about me. But um, those are now stories that become real living, breathing mechanisms for change and not just change that people talk about, true change. And I think people then just saw the reverse side and whether you're English, South African, Australian, you know, whatever you were, you just saw the power that that had. And 95 was, was huge, you know, they, Nelson Mandela, just, that was huge. But the significance of seeing that moment live and seeing true stories that then become realistic goals, dreams, and hopes for so many, it's just so powerful that it's, it's difficult to contain it. And I, 
I actually got taken back to 95 in that moment. I got taken back to witnessing a piece of history that I don't think we all comprehend how big it's going to be because it could change a country. It could change the way, you know, people are perceived. It could change thought patterns, which is difficult to do at the best of times. And like I said, I think extremely grateful and privileged to have been there and witnessed, you know, both moments live and then been able to have done it myself personally <laughs> at a uh, major it, degree. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's an interesting point, this, because I remember, well, I was talking to Sean Fitzpatrick actually not that long ago. Of course, Sean now chairs Laureus, um, the legendary all-black uh, captain, arguably, well, arguably one of the greatest players of all time. And I remember him saying to me, it wasn't just the impact that an all-black win in a, in a major competition or, or a World Cup. It was actually game by game. And he said the biggest pressure he felt as a player, as a captain of, of that great side, was that, you know, the, 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 the whole demeanour, the whole happiness, the whole tone of the nation was set for many days after uh, a, a result. It, it could be a fairly mundane, just a fairly mundane test match against anyone, but he said you just were conscious that what you did out on the park that day had such a profound impact on the way people would just turn up in the at the office on a, on a Monday morning. Yeah. And and I guess you must have felt that as as a player on on such a regular basis at virtually mm. every level that you've played at in South Africa. Easily at, at every level. Um, you know, as a youngster you grow up wanting to aspire to become a springbok. You, you know, you put in the hard work, sacrifice, and then you become a springbok. And I get asked quite a bit, you know, what was the mo most successful or the most meaningful moment in my life? You know, was it winning trophies, lifting a World Cup, you know, equaling Jonah's number of tries in a World Cup tournament? And I say to them, the day I got to pull on that springbok jersey for the first time against England in 2004 as a 21-year-old um, run out and realize a dream that had been installed in me, you know, nine years prior, get to feel the privilege, the accountability and the responsibility that comes with carrying the hopes of the nations on your shoulder, you know, making yourself, your family, um, all those who have supported you proud, but then understanding the privilege that it takes to, to wear that Springbok jersey. And I think for me, then being able to, know that I want to do this for as long as possible, that I want to be able to be that symbol of hope and you know, culminate that in winning the World Cup in 2007. And we were outside of South Africa, um, in France, foreign, you know, there was a lot of South Africans, but it wasn't home. And then come back and see young black kids in the rural townships in the Eastern Cape running a kilometer or two barefoot behind the bus just to get a glimpse of hope, yeah. just to get a yeah. glimpse of their heroes. And you try... Put that into words for people but if you're not physically living it if you're not physically experiencing the impact that that has on you as an athlete it is so difficult to pass on or reciprocate that in words and i think for me like you're actually alluded to you you get to experience that so many times you get to experience the joy that you bring you get to as much as the joy you get to experience the pain and the heartache that comes with losing and you know people actually going to work a lot more negatively um, on the Monday because of what happened on the weekend. So you're living in people's lounges, you're living in their homes, you are one of their, their mates and you have that impact on such a incredible level that, you know, you do become role models. You do become, you know, extensions of their own passions, which like I said, I've got experience for, for 15 years, 124 test matches and, you know, becoming the first player of color to represent my country a hundred times, you know, was something pre-95, you know, was probably one of the furthest thing, you know, any player of color could even imagine, you know, let alone think they could accomplish. I, I, I'm really interested. I want to want to go back, if I may, uh, a, a few years in, in, in this conversation, because you talked very openly about a relatively privileged position and, you know, upbringing you had. You were educated at King Edward's uh, School in, in uh, Johannesburg, which is a, a fee-paying boarding school and one with, uh, with an extraordinary reputation. I guess there are some just some things I'd like to explore around that. Um, that 
I'm guessing had a profound impact on your rugby career. But there's a there's another debate that always that in a way emanates in an Olympic year, and certainly in the UK, I was chair of the British Olympic Association, uh, and one of the discussions we tend to have, and it, it comes from our, our representation at an Olympic Games, it's still something like sixty, maybe even seventy percent of our Olympic teams are coming from um, private schools, not not state schools. Um, and I've heard it said in similar vein that the makeup of the, uh, the Springboks and the Proteus is also heavily weighted uh, in, in favour of uh, a, a privately educated, um, uh, privately educated pupils. Do you think enough is being done to make the game as accessible in South Africa as, and that's not just a South African issue, so it's a more yeah. broad, it's a broader issue in sport. Uh, from right away, right the way across the in South African terms, and right away across the uh, uh, South Africans' remarkably, I mean, uniquely diverse population. Mm. So I think that the biggest thing, you know, when one talks about appropriately giving everyone equal and fair opportunities, is the yeah. financial costing that comes with that, um, yeah. and unfortunately. And I take someone like Sia Khaleesi who had to get a bursary at a school um, where he was fully supported because someone was willing to contribute to his own development as a person. You have a country like South Africa and say you potentially have 70 million people. Um, and I think at the moment, given our very poor economic situation, you know, less than, you know, less than 20 or 30 or 40% of those are potentially living under the bread line. You know, how do you, applicably, you know, finance that costing because it is a cost. And I think SA Rugby have thrown millions upon millions of money into and rands into trying to facilitate developmental procedures and protocols. Um, but all of a sudden, if you go build a rugby field or a soccer field or athletic track in a township, who maintains it? Who pays for the maintenance? Who pays the groundkeeper? Who pays all these things? So, I think a lot has been tried to be done. I think there's a lot of you know NGOs, a lot of organizations that go out like Loris and give programs and upskill and try, but it is a financial burden that is yeah. difficult to overcome. I, I do believe that SRAGB has tried and in a country like South Africa, you look at transformation, you look at the term quotas that get put in place by a certain number of players of color that need to be elected. You know, is that then fair on the players that are just good enough to be there. Um, you know, and I was there, you know, I, I saw myself as a South African. I didn't see myself as a colored or black South African. And again, it's probably because I grew up being able to have a bit of privilege, but I didn't get discriminated against. or I didn't feel discriminated against. Um, and I didn't grow up as a South African. And all of a sudden you're in a team and you sort of, you know, when you play 124 test matches for your country, you hope you're there purely on your ability but there is a little bit of a doubt saying, am I only now here because of the color of my skin? So it is a very complex, a very intricate discussion that I think we can talk about for ages and ages and ages. And you know, I would like to believe that SRAP have put a lot of thought into how they can appropriately do that and not just at the, at the highest level, you know, doing it from grassroots. But that is fundamentally a financial burden that has to be, that has to be worn and carried and you know where do you get the finances from to appropriately fund you know developmental costs and procedures and protocol um but you do hope that with the likes of Sia Khaleesi, Chesan Colby, uh, Makazoli, Mapimpi, Lukanya Am who were true representatives of what is possible that players of color just then potentially never lose belief and the other difficult thing for people to understand is that only the only the cream of the crop really make it. You know, there's thousands upon thousands of rugby players. There's thousands upon thousands of athletes or whatever. And, you know, that, that the difference between making it and not is just so minute. And you can work as hard as you want. Sometimes you do need luck. And I tell everyone, you know, I, I didn't have balance as, a, as an athlete because I wanted to be the best wing in the world for every second that I was awake during the day. And I try to do that, you know, the whole time. Um, so balance was the last thing on my plate, but I needed luck. I needed coaches supporting me. You know, I needed parents supporting me. I, I needed family members 
when I was being criticized to the nth degree um, to continue believing in me. So it's not just being the best making it. Um, there's a lot of things that, that come to that. But I think for me, I would love to hope that the sporting organizations do their best in South Africa to appropriately give equal opportunity, equal and fair opportunity um, to everyone you know, with the ability. But you know, the financial burden uh, is one that is unfortunately dis disparative. And I think that's not just in South Africa, it's, it's around the world. You, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is a very is a multifaceted set of factors that come together for, as you said, a handful of people in any sport to make it to the level that that you have and, and that we're talking about. I, I actually, to maintain the Manchester United theme, I remember one of the things that uh, Alec Ferguson. I, I once asked Alec Ferguson. Uh, what was the most difficult thing about his job? And he laughed and he said, well, there's nothing difficult about my job. It, I'm manager at Manchester United. It just doesn't get any better than that. Um, but actually, he then sort of thought a little bit further and said, actually, the toughest part of my job is maybe telling a kid that's been in the academy since the age of seven, when they get to the age of 16 and their parents are sitting there, that they're probably not going to make it at the level within Manchester United that they had had had, had possibly uh, dreamed about, and and I guess that takes me to the second theme that I wanted to pick up, and it's very much about you and your career because to the casual observer, it, it does sort of feel that you coasted through the age groups almost seamlessly, um, and onto. You know, to 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 the senior echelons uh, uh, of the the sport. You know, from state rugby, Super Rugby, obviously a legendary Springbok. You played at the highest level uh, of sevens. Uh, is that a fair assessment, or is that the assessment of a fan sitting there? And I should know better than that because I also yeah. know from my own background <laughs> that there are thousands and thousands of hours of unremitting grind where it doesn't go quite as seamlessly as as the casual observer but in your case it's hard to see where where the pinch points in your career came i'm sure there were uh, no there were many and i think growing up in a country like south africa where you know kids start playing rugby at the age of three years old and it's proper i only started understanding about it when i was 12 years old you know post 95 so my first ever game of rugby at king edwards and and it's sort of weird i, I was i was always quick but i was tiny i was minute and I got King Edwards and you know, the World Cup had had in 95. And I was like, I want to be a Springbok. And they sort of got us going in terms of you know, trying to analyze, because we'd had this whole group of various different boys from different schools coming together and analyze, you know, who is the best? Or how do you then, as 14-year-olds or under 13-year-olds, actually try appropriately differentiate? So we had races and I was obviously quick, but I was a scrum off and I was the smallest. Um, and then I couldn't pass with my left hand. and I couldn't really kick like the scrum off should be able to kick. And my first ever game of rugby, believe it or not, was for the under 14 G side at King Edward. So A, B, C, D, E, F, G side. Right. This is this is giving this is giving us all hope here. <laughs> um, and obviously there was a talent, but again, you had to work. And I was a year younger than the rest of my age group at and my standards. So I had to stay back a year and I only played first team for one year. Um, I never made any age group representative rugby. So I never played SA schools. I never played SA under 19. Um, there was a lot of hurdles that I had to overcome, uh, a lot of barriers that I had to say, okay, well, I'm not going to be put in that box. I'm going to then continue working and improve certain skill sets. Um, yeah, I got, I got, I'll never forget, I got back from the 21 World Cup uh, in Scotland in 2004 and it had gone really well. We got absolutely thumping against New Zealand, um, but, you know, we ended third, I'd scored a few tries and I'd actually got an offer to go play in Australia. And there was a famous African youth player called Clive Rathbone that had gone yeah. over and become very successful in Australia. And I got an opportunity to potentially follow the same route. I was unsure of where my path was going in South Africa at the Golden Lions uh, then. And I got back, was celebrating my 21st birthday and the then senior coach of the union I was at said to me, oh, no, no, but go, go to Australia. If you don't make it there, you could come back. And as a 21-year-old, I was sitting, I was sitting there, I was thinking, sorry, 
well, you're saying I don't have a future here, um, that I must rather go. And they're always, I, I sat there, I was like, and this was 21 years old, thinking I'm going to make rugby a, you know, a professional career. Um, and I sat there thinking, okay, this was the last thing I was expecting, you know, coach who had telling me to go. And then three weeks later, I got selected to be in the Springbok squad, um, <laughs> which was so counterintuitive of what had just happened, which was, um, so yeah, there, there are many hurdles there. I, I, for me, it wasn't plain sailing. You know, there were a lot of things that I had to overcome uh, to get to, to where I was, but it, it's the joy of being a professional athlete. You know, you have to go through things that your average person never will understand. You, you, the turmoil, the sacrifice, the dedication, the hard work, the effort, the support that you need from people around you. It's, you know, whether, whether you're a athlete individually doing a sports event like tennis or athletics or whatever, it's always involved the team. You know, you can never do it by yourself. And it's uh, that team can be minute. It can be two or three or four, or it can be as big as a rugby team of 50 winning a world cup, but it wasn't all plain sailing. Um, so from, from the under 14 G side at King Edwards, um, to becoming yeah the most capped Springbok wing of all time is, is not a bad not a bad turnaround. Okay, from the under fourteen G side uh, to the Lions, to, from the sublime, or from the ridiculous to the sublime, the other way around. Um, we've got a obviously there's a, a Lions tour coming up. First of all, sort of lots of subplots emerging ahead of this year's uh, Lions tour. Not least, a sort of eerie similarity to the two thousand and nine tour when the Lions arrived to take on the reigning world champions. I think it is so difficult to try explain to people how spectacular, how unique, and how encumbersome a Lions tour is. I think it is one of the most unique, most extraordinary traditions that rugby has. I tell everyone, I ran out onto to Loftus Fosfeld in the second test match, which was probably one of the most physically demanding games that I've ever been involved in in my career. And as I run out and running out onto a field that I'd become so accustomed to, I'd felt so at home at, and just seeing the sea of red engulf the stadium um, make me feel and think to myself, am I in South Africa or am I playing in the UK? Um, and until you've experienced the Lions tour as a player, as a fan, you don't fully comprehend or understand that. And for us, winning that tour was exceptional. You know, there, there was the disappointment of 97. Um, there was the hope that, you know, we could do something different and rewrite the story. And to, to let people sort of comprehend how special the Lions is, there are some test centurions, so players that have played 100 test matches that have never got the opportunity to play against the Lions just because of the window, because it only happens once every 12 years in the Southern Hemisphere countries of South Africa, New Zealand, or Australia. So you you can you can be unfortunate, you can be lucky, or you can be so extremely unfortunate. Um, but to then see, and it's it's not just about what happens on the field. And I tell a lot of people, you know, you see the games, you see the fans, but you don't see the things of the Lions going into the townships in South Africa and building fields that leave a legacy, donating clothes, donating kit, you know, giving back in a way in which you just see the the hurrah of you know of the sport. So Africa as a team haven't played rugby since that famous victory against the English on the second of November in 2019. Uh, yeah, we, so, we we remember that too. <laughs> so the fact that we're still number one in the world, I think we can count ourselves extremely lucky, given that we haven't played any rugby over the course of the last 17 months. But Warren Gatlin now has the opportunity as a Lions coach to be the first coach to not lose a Lions series. And South Africa have the mantle of not only being the reigning series champions, but also the World Cup winners now for the third time in a row. Okay, so. well, Brian, you've tiptoed very carefully through this, so I'm going to pin <laughs> you here. Prediction. Prediction, I'm going to go South Africa are going to win it in the third test. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll, regroup, we'll regroup after, after, that, uh, after that particular game. Um, let me move on to the world game, if I may, just momentarily. Um, I'm interested in your views here. First of all, I'm guessing you're going to tell me the game has changed significantly, even from when you were uh, at the height of, uh, of your powers. Uh, and as somebody wearing a completely different hat here, who's responsible for world athletics and the codifications and the rules, are there any rules that you would change, amend, um, or, or, or introduce 
that would just, yeah. I guess, just guarantee the next generation that comes through that plays as scintillating a game as, as you have displayed to the world? So the biggest thing in rugby at the moment is obviously the contact, the collisions and you know, the yeah. ramifications from the number of head knocks. And again, knowing that rugby is a collision sport, um, you know, trying to avoid contact is a very difficult debate, you know, because, you know, reckless behavior definitely needs to be penalized. Um, I think for me, you know, obviously there's the very cynical stuff that needs to be affected, but I think you want to promote a game that is to a degree safe to play, um, to a degree is entertaining to watch and to a degree able to really open up to new markets, which I think rugby is really trying to do at the moment. So there are a few rule changes that have come into place. So the lower, lowering of contact um, to the head is something that I think is extremely important. And, you know, that there's been various trials. I think to make the game really more entertaining and exciting, you know, we, we love to see running rugby. So doing stuff that potentially promote attack rather than defense. And, you know, that, that might be, you know, making sure that there always have to be two players being able to defend the, you know, the back part of the field or have a potential rule like rugby, rugby league that, you know, if you kick the ball out of a certain area that you get to reclaim the ball. Um, I potentially see if we can minimize the number of scrum resets we have in a game um, to just speed up the game of play. So there's quite a few, I think the biggest one, and it's one of the biggest narratives at the moment is unfortunately, you know, the, the, Concussion. the, the, yeah. the head injury protocol um, that yeah. you know, is getting a serious look at. And it's, it's just such a difficult and subjective thing you know, in a contact sport where you have less than a millisecond to potentially adjust your body height if someone ducks in front of you. Um, but I think world rugby and the international rugby players um, are really trying their best to get to a point where we're making the game as safe as possible. But given that it's a collision sport, I just think it is, is a very difficult one. But I think seeing that Rugby World Cup final, and I can say that honestly, you know, where previously, you know, South Africa never scored a try in a final to see the Springboks scoring, you know, yeah. those tries, to see the All Blacks, you know, playing a brand of rugby, to see Argentina go to Australia amidst a pandemic where they didn't train together, had to isolate for two weeks in Australia to go and beat the New Zealand, you know, All Blacks um, in, in 2020. Um, so I think there are moments I was a part of, you know, that Springbok team that lost to Japan in 2015 that gave birth to incredible support, you know, in, in Japan in, in 2019. So, yeah, I mean, there'd, there'd be a few things I'd like to change, but it, I would like to change it in a way in which the attacking team, you know, really um, has a bit more power because the defences have just become so, so ragged um, and difficult to break down. I'm interested. You use the uh, expression "globalizing the game." I'm guessing, as an HSB, HSBC Sevens ambassador, uh, you tell me that uh, Sevens has done that in large part, and also, um, in a way, uh, bringing more, many more women into the game. Mm. Easily, I've done that. I think the big, big bang, as they call it, in Sevens definitely came when rugby came when Sevens was voted as Olympic sport. Back in, in 2009, I was, I was sort of a part of the, the group of ambassadors that, that sort of chaired for that to happen. Um, and to see rugby come back into the Olympics. I know it was back in the early early 1920s or 30s, I think. Um, and I think HSBC in particular have now gone on to terming not just you know thriving, but to make opportunities happen. And that we as people you know become internationalists you know, in this new world of a new normal. And seven so appropriately applies that mantle. Um, I've been incredibly fortunate to have been on the the red polo gang, the HSBC ambassador roster for for the last uh, three years, and getting to go to the likes of a of a Hong Kong sevens, getting to go to Sydney sevens, getting to go to Vancouver, um, getting to go to Vegas and see the rise of sevens, see the sport become a lot more globalized and enter new markets and territories that creates more fans, creates more eyeballs on the sport, uh, but also gives you a sense of the beauty that rugby has in bringing people together. And Sevens does that so perfectly. You know, you have 16 teams that are men, 16 teams that are women coming together from all nations in the world. You don't have a partisan crowd of 
English supporters and South African supporters. You have a mixed crowd from all over the world, just loving the raw beauty of the speed, the power, the prowess of sevens. Um, and it just taking the game globally. Then you go to Dubai and you go to Paris and you go to London. So it is an international game. Um, and sevens has, again, been going into the Olympics and giving a different mantle. I mean, I tried my best to get into the Rio Olympics in 2016, probably one year too far for me. Um, I unfortunately just didn't make it, you know, but having rugby players have the opportunity to win an Olympic gold medal. Well, it, it um, was, it, it, you're right. I mean, it was, I, I remember well when uh, rugby were campaigning to become an Olympic sport, unsurprisingly, it was world rugby um, and uh, the, the, the board that, uh, invited the International Olympic Committee and the members that were going to make that decision to go and watch the Hong Kong Sevens. I remember the impact. Some of those men and women who never seen rugby before just said, this has got to come in. This is party atmosphere at its yeah. very best. And surprise, surprise. We're literally within months of, of a Hong Kong Sevens. It, it, was, it was on the chart. Listen, um, everything you've said thus far uh, in this interview um, has inevitably, of course, led you and what you passionately believe in about sport and the bridgehead that sport has has played, not in just in your life, but the lives of 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 everyone else. I'm guessing it was inevitable you were going to set up a foundation. I don't think it was inevitable. Um, I would like to believe that it was because of the experience I garnered as a professional athlete and being able to see firsthand the impact that sport could play in really changing people's lives. And I put myself at the front of that queue because it really did change my life. And, you know, I'd come out of a position of privilege, but, you know, and I say I am a South African and I don't see myself as a person. I kind of say I see myself as a South African and being able to see, you know, what rugby gave to our country and how it really did bring people together at various stages of my career. But to then know the platform that, you know, as professional athletes were given, to have a voice, to make a difference and to inspire. And, and starting the Brian Abana Foundation with the initial thought of, you know, passing on some of the leadership skills that I'd learned and, and going back into the communities and trying to make a tangible difference was something that was really close to my heart because of seeing, you know, the incredible opportunity that we are presented with. Uh, obviously being associated with the Loris Academy and seeing the incredible work they're doing around the world. And it has been, it has been, something that you just can't put a price tag on. And that's so, so difficult to tell people what goes through you when you see the joy on someone's face, being able to be instilled with some hope and whether that hope be a piece of bread. And we have seen with the pandemic. Give me an example of one of the, give me an example of one of the projects that you've undertaken through the foundation. So the, the team of Anna is a, a youth leadership initiative, which we actually started off in, in the UK because I was based in France with an organization called the change foundation, where we take yep. young adolescents between the ages of 16 and 21 from previously underprivileged areas and take them through a, a year long youth leadership program of which the, Main focus is, you know, bar the initial residential and me being and teaching some skills and then being mentored is these young adults actually going out and doing a hundred hours worth of community give back within their own communities. Because I'm also of the opinion that, you know, as an individual, if you can make a difference in your own environment, in your own household, and then expand that to your own immediate bubble, your own immediate community, your own immediate city, and hopefully only need a country um, you know, this world can really become a bigger place. Um, so the team of Banner, you know, we, you know, we had a couple of incredible youngsters come through that leadership program, much like most organizations over the course of the pandemic, you know, started a food, a food scheme last year where, you know, we raised just, just under 2 million Rand, you know, gave, you know, food hampers to just over 20,000 people and allow people to, in this very tough economic times in a country like South Africa, where, you're underprivileged or just so underprivileged um, at least have a meal. So a few exciting things on the rise. Um, but yeah, I think having a platform, being able to give back and being able to make a difference is something that, like I said, I'm extremely grateful um, for that privilege and honor. There, 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 there strikes me in the career of any top competitor to be two, if you like, twin challenges. The first is 
that rapid rise to fame. And it and it sometimes can come very, very quickly. You know, you break a world record, you go from anonymity to suddenly being on the front page uh, of newspapers. And we we sort of charted, you know, very articulately your um your your rise. Uh, but then there's the responsibility that comes with that status. And I think the second challenge is navigating mentally and physically life once the stadium doors have closed. And, you know, we've talked about the first element of that. I'm, I'm interested in once your career was over, what mindset you then took into other elements of what you wanted to achieve uh, in your life. So, so I think the the narrative around the transition in professional sport is probably one of the biggest that many athletes face currently because it is just such a scary, such a daunting. Um, and it's all about mental a, well-being as well in the end. Men, mental, men, well, mental and physical well-being. And, you know, you, yeah. you go through as a professional athlete and you, you know, you don't get taught how to detrain yourself. Um, you know, at the end of your career, you don't, you don't get taught how to detrain physically, you know, detrain mentally. And I think a lot of things positively are happening around, you know, the mental wellness perspective of that narrative, which is great. It's about trying to upskill yourself. I think it is very difficult. Like I said, I, I didn't have balance as an athlete, as a professional rugby player, because I just wanted to be the best rugby player in the world. And I focused so much of my energy, time and attention to that. And, you know, trying to then appropriately um, understand how that, can happen and can work. Um, I was able to go to the Toulouse Business School for the last year of my, my career and do a bit of studying, upskill myself in certain areas, you know, being able to understand how to read a budget, um, you know, some basic law principles, some marketing mix, mixed digital strategy, some things that, you know, were very nuanced in terms of understanding that from a rugby perspective. But the transition period is a scary one. I have been extremely fortunate to have teamed up with the likes of HSBC, a MasterCard, and you know, done some work with IPV over over in Japan in 2019. Um, I have also become a little bit entrepreneurial, starting two startups. Uh, one, a digital sports marketing agency with uh, an old school mate um, called Retroactive. And we've launched a digital platform called Match Get Out of That, which actually enables sportsmen and ad sportsmen and women to, you know. Have we got a unicorn. We got a unicorn on the way. We hope so. We hope so. Uh, <laughs> we really do hope so. It's getting there. We've actually signed up the the USA um, swimming Olympic team. Um, oh, well done you. Which which is really exciting. So yeah, we we're growing nicely there. And then I launched a fintech company that does an earned wage access model. Um, at the start of the pandemic last year, which was pretty interesting. But it's, a, again, about teaming up with people that you trust and putting yourself in a way in which that can you know, really become successful. So I have been fortunate, but again, even those that you know, can really transition um, in that period, it's, it's, not, it's not the easiest. And I think the biggest thing you know, is the financial impact because you go from earning yeah. the salary of a CEO um, to potentially being at the bottom of the food chain, um, having become accustomed to a lifestyle because of that salary, um, to then know that you know if you even if you use all your savings, um, that's not going to last you for the rest of your life. So, being able to then appropriately digest and financially I, put things into I, place. I think I think I think the other challenge is, of course, and I've often been asked this question, and the advice I've always given competitors who find themselves in that position is: look, because you finished your career at sort of C-suite CEO level, do not assume that you're going to start your next career at that level. And just remember what it took to come through those years of unremitting slog that took you through your sport. You're going to have to do that again. And you have the big advantage of having created in a way or, or, or learned to live with that kind of focus, just use it again. And, and, and normally it will... Will pay. Let me. It, it, you you've got a clearly a massively busy schedule. Um, <laughs> you know, post your your career. I also um, and congratulations. I know you were nominated for a Royal Television uh, Society Award for your work on the uh, the 2019 Rugby World Cup, which we are sort of still trying to come to terms with <laughs> in the UK. But that was on uh, on TV. Do you see? a part of your landscape going forward, maybe in uh, in that type of media work? I absolutely love the punditry perspective of life. I think it's always been 
a difficult one because as a player, when I was playing, I absolutely hated the old guys talking about me. Um, so you're trying to do it appropriately and in a way in which you, you know, don't criticize too much. You're going to become one of them in a few years, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> but it, again, I've been extremely fortunate. You know, I've done some work with, with Channel 4 over in the UK. I've done some work with ITV at the Rugby World Cup in 2019 and absolutely love that. I was over in the UK in November last year for the Autumn Nations Cup with Amazon Prime. Uh, and again, I think being able to speak in a way in which isn't uh, encapsulating for, for the audience is something that I'm grateful to have. I'm really enjoying business and corporate at the moment. I think it's a different hand. It's stimulating me in a different way. FinTech is a very awesome craze at the moment. I've always loved my tech. So being being in, in, in that part of it is, is also exciting. I do like still being a part of the game. And I think in the punditry perspective, you get to live and breathe in a different way. You know, being pitch side at 2019 World Cup final and just knowing that I was so much closer than anyone else just because of the role I was playing. So hoping to be in France in, in 2023, uh, hoping that that nomination that, that, I, that I received, I unfortunately did lose it to the, to the great Michael Holding um, and his commentary with, uh, with Sky Sports uh, around the Black Lives Matter movement. And the, I mean, I could have even lost it to Gabby Logan. Uh, I was probably third on the list. But yeah, I, I could see. I definitely could see potential there. There's no shame in either of those nominations. They are at the at the top of their game. Brian, I I know you're going to get elevated to 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 that level, and I also look forward to uh, seeing whether your predictions that you've made for the uh, Lions tour coming up are as as accurate and as positive as you claimed a few moments ago. Brian, thank you ever so much for taking the time. You've been gracious uh, and generous. Uh, and thank you. You've put a lot of things in perspective for a, for a rugby fan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Kerr. Absolute pleasure. And hope to see you at the next Glorious Awards. Uh, you will. <laughs> You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales, brought to you by CSN.